Well, good morning. How are you? All right. Great to hear. Good to hear. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, this morning we are continuing our series, The Real Jesus, through the Gospel of Mark. There are 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going we're gonna to try to tackle basically one chapter a week. Uh, we're not going to hit every single part of the book, but we're going to try to hit the highlights um, over the summer and uh, ending right at the beginning of the fall. And so this morning, if you've got a Bible, I would love to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We're going to read the, uh, the last paragraph of Mark chapter 2 as we continue um, looking at what Mark says about who the real Jesus is, that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. So if you would um, stand with me, if, you're, if you didn't bring a Bible, you can find Mark chapter 2 on page 838 on one of the blue Bibles that's... Um, on the, uh, on the chairs or on the ground near you. We're going to read uh, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. Sorry. He was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which, is, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do harm, uh, to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? God, would you give us ears to hear what you have to say to your people this morning. God, we, um, I know from experience that uh, nothing is harder for us to talk about than the way that we spend our time. It is our most precious resource, and so I pray that you would help us to hear good news this morning. As we look to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Okay, so we're talking this morning about rest. Um, how does following Jesus lead us into rest? And um, I got to say, this is hard. It doesn't seem like it should be that hard to talk about rest, and yet it's not something we do well, and it's not something that we want to talk about. And I was struck that the last verse that, that I just read there, it's when Jesus talks about rest that the Pharisees 
get together with their enemies, the Herodians, and try to collude and figure out how to get rid of Jesus. We don't like it when people tell us how to spend our time. Um, So with that in mind, the question that I think this passage poses to us is this. What kind of God do you have? What kind of God do you have? Uh, There was once a family that was going to the beach, and it was summer, and it was warm, and it had taken all day to get everything that needed to be done, done in order to go to the beach. And the, uh, the family drove up and got out of the car, and the dad was especially eager to get down to the beach on the sand and just have nothing to do. And so, um, of course, going to the beach, there's all kinds of gear. There's chairs, and there's coolers, and there's kids, and there's boogie boards, and <clears throat> all of the stuff that you've got to take to the, uh, to the beach. And so the dad, in this case, was carrying all kinds of stuff, and his hands were full, and the kids were just not moving fast enough. And so uh, dad didn't have enough hands, and so he just offered a, a little finger to his little daughter. And the daughter was struggling to keep up, and dad was in a hurry to get down to the beach. And the daughter kept falling behind, and dad kept, why do you assume this is me? Um, And finally, the daughter just kind of stomps her foot and says, Daddy, if you would just hold on to me, then I wouldn't keep falling behind all the time. And in that moment, kind of dad's, heart was moved and his eyes were open and he just dropped all the stuff and carried his daughter down to the beach and went back and got the rest of the stuff. And the reason I tell you that is to ask you this. What part of that story resonates with the way that you think of your God? See, some of us, for many of us, God is this father figure and he's always just a little bit annoyed with us. God is distant, he's got very high standards, he's in a hurry to get things done, and we feel like we are always falling behind. Uh, We're doing our best to follow him, but it's difficult. We're trying to reach him, we're trying to follow him, but mostly we're struggling. Oftentimes, we feel like we're failing. And that, I want to tell you, is the religious approach to God. The religious approach to God, religion says that uh, religion is mostly about what God wants from me. There's always more to be done. And even when we come to look at this passage, it's about rest. It's like, I mean, come on. What more do you want from me, God? Like, can you just give me my rest? And it's exhausting. Others of us maybe resonate with a little girl when she finally puts her foot down and says, enough, I can't do anymore. I give up. It's too hard trying to please you, God. I'm just going to do my own thing. And maybe I, I think for many people in our culture, that is the predominant response to the predominant view of God. It's if religion says God always wants more from me, you know what? I just don't care what anybody wants from me anymore. At least I'll be happy in the moment. But there's a third way here. There's a third way. The Father is the one who picks you up. The Father is the one who sets aside his agenda, who gives up what he wants to get done in order to call you his child. Uh, Yes, he's strong, but he is strong for you. 
He is going somewhere, but he is taking you there. Religion is all about what God wants from me, and many of us are worn out from it, and so we've kind of pushed back and said, I don't care what anybody wants from me anymore. I'm just going to do what makes me happy. But Christianity is not about what God wants from you. It's about what God wants for you. Okay? Christianity is not about what God wants from you. It's about what God wants for you. So what kind of God do you have? Because it makes all the difference in the world. Two people may be living very similar lives externally, and yet one person is doing it because they think it will make God happy. The other person is doing it because God is already happy with them in Christ. So which one are you? What kind of God do you have? Is he the disappointed father who wants more for you? Have you given up on him? Or do you know that there is so much more that God wants for you, not just from you? And listen, when I'm, when I'm asking that question, I'm not saying like, if I gave you a test, is God your father? Yes, I would. You know, um, theologically, we know many of us, if you've been to, you know, in a Bible study, what are the correct answers? Are you adopted by God? Yes. Are you justified by Jesus? Yes. Um, you know, I'm not asking what, what would you answer on the test. I'm saying uh, in the moment of weakness, in the moment of pain, or how about this? Um, when, did you wake up this morning eager to go talk to your father? I mean, it blows my mind, but that's how my kids wake up every single morning, eager to come and see Dad. Um, or when the future is uncertain, do you know that you have a Father who is looking out for you, and you don't know what tomorrow might hold? But He does. He does. I have to say I'm terrible at this. Um, <laughs> uh, I, my wife is... Um, homesick with, uh, with one of our kids, which is good for me because in the moment she's not going to be looking at me going, what a hypocrite. Um, I failed at almost everything I'm going to say this morning. Okay, I'm not saying this the, uh, to kind of, I don't know, lord anything over you, but as a fellow struggler who is um, uh, terrible at resting, um, we are busy people. We are frenetic people. Um, I say this all the time. You ask somebody, how are you? They say, I'm busy. Um, you know what that is? It's a boast uh, disguised as a complaint. Okay? To say that we are busy, it's a boast disguised as, as a complaint. I don't know. I'm like, I'm so in need by all these people. I'm in such high demand. Like, I just can't. <sighs> Life is so hard, you know. Um, I want you to look at this passage with me because what I want you to see is not what God wants from you, but what God wants for you. So first thing I want you to see in this passage is why is Jesus so angry? Um, did you notice this in, um, at the end of the passage in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 5? It says, Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He is angry. He, he, I mean, he's grieved. It's almost the way that he would talk about seeing somebody uh, when, he, when it says that he's angry because they have, they have hard hearts. It's like seeing somebody caught in addiction, somebody doing something to themselves that is self-destructive. And Jesus is, is grieved. He is angry at what is going on. Why is he so angry? It's a little bit hard to understand. Um, Especially if we think, like, why is Jesus making such a big deal over how people rest? Like, it's just rest. Stop, like, what's the big deal? Um, 
What's happening is the controversy, the, the cause of this controversy is their attitude towards the Sabbath. Now, the Jewish people, the one thing that had defined them, literally from, from the beginning, from God had, when God had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, was that every seven days they rested. Um, they took the day off. And uh, this goes back to Genesis 1 when God finished his work of creating and then he, uh, and then he rested. And it's in the Ten Commandments. Uh, the fourth commandment is um, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so two things happen here that have the Pharisees tweaked here. Uh, Jesus' disciples, they're walking through a field. And as they walk through the field, his disciples stretch out their hand and pick a grain of wheat and eat it. Oh my gosh, right? And then, and then, um, Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath. He's like, you know, some sort of medical practice is going on here on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders had put up so many, like, boundaries around the command to keep the Sabbath holy. Um, that what Jesus was doing was technically illegal. There were 39 different forms of work that were specifically prohibited on the Sabbath. And so everything Jesus and his disciples are doing here was technically illegal. But the purpose of the Sabbath is rest. The purpose of the Sabbath is to restore. And so when Jesus is healing and when his disciples are eating food, they're, 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 what they're doing is, is restorative, right? Uh, but in their desire to keep the Sabbath... They have built a fence around the Sabbath. And it's like, uh, I mean, imagine you put a pool in your backyard. You have this beautiful new backyard. It's landscaped. You've got a pool. And you want to keep everybody safe. And so you put a fence around it. Well, the, the Pharisees have put 39 fences around this beautiful day of rest. To the point that it is no longer a, uh, a day of rest. It is a burden to observe. And then in... Um, Chapter uh, 2, verse 27, Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, what is he saying? Um, and here, here's, um, here's what he's not saying. He is not saying what I think most of us assume that he is saying. Um, he isn't saying, hey, you guys, just relax, okay? <laughs> he's not saying you're being way too uptight about this Sabbath thing. God doesn't really care if you observe the Sabbath. Jesus is not saying that. And I think we have to be clear about that because most, let's see, what group of people? Americans, American Christians, Christians alive today, all of those groups of people, let's say, think that what Jesus is saying here is don't worry about the Sabbath, just do whatever you want. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Um, he's not saying that the Sabbath doesn't matter. He's saying something much more profound. What he's saying is God's law was made for us, not us for God's law. Okay, Man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man or humanity. Um, God's law was not made to see if we could keep it, but it was made in order to help us. It was made for our benefit. Um, it, what, what he's saying is that like, God is not like building this mousetrap and seeing if we can get through the maze by keeping his law. He's not just messing with us. Um, God's law isn't arbitrary. God is not messing with you. What, it, what, he, what Jesus is saying is that God's law is a gift, not a burden. It's given to you by a loving father who wants you to find joy and who wants you to flourish. And he knows how you work. And so he tells you what is good for you, what's best for you. It's not a burden given to you by a tyrannical God who's keeping things from you. 
and that you're just going to have to learn how to endure what God says and deal with it. I think every single one of us believes that if we really obeyed God, if we really took his law, his commandments seriously, that we would be missing out on something. And what Jesus is saying is that is not at all the case. Your father loves you. He doesn't want more from you. He wants more for you. Until you understand that the law is a gift, you will never really be able to obey it. And so even when you cease activity, you won't actually be truly able to rest. Um, Thursday, my, my three boys go to school here. And on Thursday was their last day of school, and so they had this flag ceremony. And the principal was giving out awards for perfect attendance. And so, um, you know, she, she invites up, like, I don't know, every kid that hadn't missed a day of school this past year, and there's like 25 kids that come up. I think, wow, that's pretty impressive. And then they sit down, and she says, okay, but there's some kids that haven't missed a day of school in two years. She begins to call names, and there's like eight kids that come up, haven't missed a day of school in two years. They sit down, and then she says, some kids haven't missed a day of school in three years. She called six names. One of them wasn't there. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? Yeah, okay, that's fantastic. Okay. Four years, there's like four kids that haven't missed a day of school. And finally, she gets to the fifth graders. And there's three fifth graders at this school that have never missed a day of school in six years, right? Since kindergarten through fifth grade, never missed a single day of school. Now, around year three, no, missed, missing no days of school, I, I kind of start thinking, like, what is with these parents, you know? Like, what kind of slave driver do you have to be to get your kids to school every single day? I have to confess, around four years, I asked Ashley if I, could, um, I, if I could actually give out perfect attendance awards this Sunday, and she said that I couldn't do that at, at, uh, at church. Okay, so six years, these kids have never missed a day of school, and I'm in my head going, what kind of slave obedience is that? Never a sick day, never a vacation day, never went to Disneyland, you know, or whatever. And the principal said something really, I thought, profound at that moment. She said, the only reason these kids have never missed a day of school is because they love coming to school. And I just thought, like, that is so right. Like, I could maybe get my kids to school every single day for a year or two. I don't know. But, like, at some point, the only way you're actually going to obey or, you know, have perfect attendance is because you actually want to be at school. And so the principal said, these, these kids aren't just um, great attenders, they're great students because they actually want to be here. You will never really be able to obey God's law until you see it is actually a good thing. It is a gift. And that's almost like the intro for the, what I need to say now, but I felt like I had to start with that because we all just think that what Jesus is saying here is don't worry about the Sabbath. Don't worry about resting. It's up to you. Jesus is angry because we view God's law like it's a burden, or we make it into a burden for other people. That's why Jesus is angry in this passage. But secondly, um, secondly, uh, he says this curious thing. He says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Um, 
In chapter 2, verse 27, 28, Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he continues, So the Son of Man himself, Jesus, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, what is he saying? Well, what he's not doing there is repealing the Sabbath. He's not saying God's people in the Old Testament um, rested one day a week and now, you know, no more. Um, What Jesus is actually saying when he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he's, he's saying, I am the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath. He's not saying I am Lord over the Sabbath. He's saying I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I can give you rest. And when he says this, um, we didn't look at this passage, but earlier in chapter 2, Jesus has just um, forgiven someone's sins. And the Pharisees are all over him because they say only God has the authority to forgive sins. So who do you think you are? And Jesus follows that up by saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And what he's saying here is almost more audacious. Um, and it's an even greater claim than the claim to be able to forgive sins because when he's saying, I am the Sabbath, he's saying, I'm the one who can give you true rest. I'm the one who can give you true rest. When he's talking about rest, he's not just talking about like not working. Um, to really understand what the Sabbath is about, you have to go back to Genesis 1, because in Genesis 1, we read over that God said, God created, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And six days, God created the heavens and earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. Now, why did God rest on the seventh day? Did God rest because creating the world is exhausting? I mean, <laughs> no. <laughs> like, it would be for us, right? But God, is, God doesn't rest because he's tired. He rests because he's done. Um, my wife and I have been watching this lawyer show, and, you know, it's like in the trial, the defense rests. Why? Not because the defense is worn out. Because the defense is finished. They've made their case. They, they've finished what they set out to say, to do, and it is completed. And so God rests at the end of this creation week, um, not because he's tired, but because he is done, it is very good. And God, therefore, um, calls us to rest one day out of seven. He says to, tells us to walk away from our work. And most of us, I think, respond to that by saying, you know, that sounds great, but I can't. Because I'm not done. I haven't finished what I need to get done, and so I can't really rest. I'm not, I'm not finished yet. And I think when we say that, we're actually revealing more about ourselves than we know. Because the reason that we struggle to rest is not because we don't have enough time. It's because we are not complete. It's because we are insecure. It's because we are anxious people. And we work because we think a little bit more will result in being a little bit better or hide a little bit more of what we're afraid is going to leak out. I um, felt this this last week, so I um, the next I'm traveling like the next two weeks, and uh, so I was trying to set up several appointments this last week, and I would text people and say, "Is there any chance we could get lunch this week? I'd really love to meet with you this week because I'm going to be gone the next two weeks." And of course, the texts come back, and they're like, "Wow, must be nice." And I have to like really quickly be like, "I'm working. I'm going to be at a conference, okay?" Like. Because the one thing, like I might fail at everything in my life, but the one thing I do not want anybody to say is he didn't work hard enough. 
Now, why am I so anxious about that? Why am I so insecure? Um, why would it be so hard for me to be like, yeah, I'm going to be on vacation for two weeks? And what, like, even right now, I'm just like, I want to clarify that I'm not going to be on vacation <laughs> for two weeks, okay? Um, we're insecure people. The one thing I never want somebody to say is that he didn't work hard enough. Um, I remember several years ago when my oldest son, well, my second son was just learning to walk. Um, so he's, I don't know, six, seven, eight. How old are kids when they walk? I can't remember. Nine months old, let's say. And so my older son is like two. And, um, and Porter, he's, he's starting to walk. He's taking steps. And I'm just, you know, filled with pride looking at this little guy. And, and I remember like just picking him up and saying, Porter, I'm so proud of you. And his older brother, who's two, hears me say that and says, Daddy, tell me that you're proud of me too. I remember just being so heartbroken that at two years old, he already feels that sense of insecurity that we all feel. That says, I want somebody to tell me that they're proud of me. I want somebody to tell me that I'm enough. And when I hear you say something good about my brother, it makes me feel insecure about myself. We are insecure people. Some of us are proud of never resting. Some of us boast about we haven't been on vacation in years. It's in all of us, the sense that we are not enough. And so we work and we work to try to quiet the voices in our own heads that tell us that we are not enough, that we are not worthy, that we have to do a little bit more. And Jesus comes and says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and you'll never truly find rest until I give it to you. In fact, even when you stop working, you could go on vacation for the summer, and you will still, you will still, I mean, there is a sense, like, have you ever just like sat on a couch and watched Netflix for two days? It's awful. <laughs> it's exhausting. <laughs> Not that I would know from experience, but how did, okay. You will never truly be able to rest until you have experienced the rest that only Jesus provides. So how does that work? Well, do you think that it's a coincidence that on the cross, the final words that Jesus said were, it is finished. It is finished. It is done. Of course it's not. What is he saying? He's saying, you can rest because I have done everything necessary to grant you peace, to give you rest. Um, what Jesus is saying is you can rest because I have finished the work, the real work, the work that keeps you up at night, um, the work that interrupts your sleep, the anxiety that interrupts your sleep. Um, I've never been a morning person. I'm still not, I will never be a morning person. Uh, but when our family first moved here three years ago to begin planting this church, I was waking up at like four in the morning <laughs> every day. And my wife's like, what is wrong with you? And she also said, you've never been this anxious. I've never seen you this anxious in your life. I'm like, I know, I'm going to go to Starbucks and tell 15 people about Jesus today. <laughs> it's insane, right? It's because I'm anxious what Jesus is saying on the cross when he says it is finished is this, that even if you utterly fail, you still have the face of God. Jesus on the cross 
God the Father turns his back. Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? Jesus loses the face of God on the cross because Jesus is taking your anxiety, your shame, the things that you never want to mention to anyone else upon himself. And it's ugly and it's hideous. And Jesus takes it upon himself. And the Father turns his back on Jesus so that he will never turn his back on you. And so what that means for you is that whatever else may happen in your life, in your work, in your relationships, you have the love of the Father. It's not whatever else may happen to you. It's whatever else you may do, whatever you may fail at, you still have the love of the Father. Jesus died to quiet the accusations that come from within and without, the voices that say, I am not enough. On the cross, Jesus lost the Father's face so that you never will. And then he cried out, giving up his spirit, it is finished, so that you can actually find rest. The real work is done. Jesus is not saying here, I'm changing the rules. He's saying, I am your rest. I am your rest. If you know me, you will know rest. Okay. Thirdly, I just want to finish by saying some things practically about how we actually find rest. I think I've got five things here. And let me just like say this very clearly that these are not new laws. <laughs> like, because you, like, this is what the Pharisees did. They made these rules and said, this is how you must rest. And I'm not saying that these are things that you must do to rest. Um, this is not legalism. These are suggestions. But five practical things to actually rest. And the first thing is this, that you have to, um, <laughs> you have to, but it's just my advice, you have to start with rest, okay? Um, this, I think, is incredibly simple and yet very profound because we live in a culture where, and I think some of it is just, it's so expensive to live in Orange County that we feel like we always should be doing more and there's always more going on and so we're working crazy hours and then when we finally get a chance to let down, it's like, spring break for middle-aged people or something. It's just, um, I don't know if you experience this. Everybody who lives in Ladera Ranch that goes to any pool on the weekend has seen this in full effect. Um, but the idea that we think is if I work hard enough, then I will finally be able to rest, and it doesn't actually satisfy, and it doesn't actually um, restore us. So we can't work towards rest. We have to work out of rest. Um, you know the song... Um, everybody's working for the weekend or the bumper sticker, work hard, play harder. It's this idea that like, I, if I work hard enough, then I will actually earn the rest. But the gospel turns that completely on its head. Um, for 2,000 years, Christians have met for worship, not on the last day of the week, but on the first day of the week. That we actually begin our lives and our work and our week with rest. Um, Nothing will help you do great work more than beginning with rest. When you begin with the reminder that you are secure in the love of your Father, then you'll actually be able to go out into life rested, restored, and you will be able to do good work. Secondly, um, start with worship. This might be the most controversial thing I'm going to say today. Um, if you don't understand that gospel rest involves worship, then coming to church will just feel like another thing on your to-do list. Um, 
If you don't understand gospel rest, worship will just be one more thing you have to do. You'll loathe it. You'll tell yourself you're too busy. But when you understand that the gospel is about what God has done for you, it's not about what God has done, or it's not about what God wants from you. It's about what God has done for you. Then beginning your rest with worship actually makes all the sense in the world. Because you have to remember who you are in order to be a fully functioning person who can actually start with rest and then go out into the rest of your week. Um, And church is the only place where you will hear the truth about who you are. Like there is no place else in our world and our lives where you can be who you are without trying to hide anything where you are valuable because you are created in the image of God, not because of what you bring to the table. But that's who you are in Christ. Uh, It's not what you've earned, it's who you are. And so you have to begin to rest with worship because every moment the restlessness creeps back in and tells us we're not enough and we have to lift our eyes off of ourselves and our troubles and be reminded about who God is and what he says about us. Um, thirdly, your resting needs to be communal and intentional. And I think especially now, especially now, um, I, I don't know if this, uh, like, does this make sense? It's only in the last, like, hundred years where a weekend was a thing. Like, like, do you realize that? Like, nobody else, I don't know exactly what the date is, maybe 200 years, I don't know. But, like, the idea that you have a right to two days off work a week is a relatively recent phenomenon. And, but what has happened is that we now, we now think that we have the, um, not, not that uh, a, a day off is a privilege, it's actually something that we have a right to, that we have an entitlement to. And because we think we have an entitlement to it, it's easier for us to squander it as well. And so what that means is like our work uh, and rest patterns are a mess. And basically what I want to say is you can't trust yourself to know when you're actually resting or when you've actually done enough rest. Um, Judith Shulevitz is an author who wrote a, um, a, a piece in the New York Times Magazine called uh, Bring Back the Sabbath. And um, she wrote this. So Judith Shulevitz was uh, raised in an Orthodox, or I don't know Orthodox, but like observant Jewish family and then left that in her 20s and then found that basically living the uh, lifestyle of a young single professional in New York City was absolutely exhausting. And so she started going back to synagogue um, initially because she was just exhausted and eventually re-embraced her faith. But she wrote this. She said, most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is to not work. But the inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was a much more complicated undertaking. You cannot downshift casually and easily the way that you might slip into bed at the end of of a long day. As a cat in a hat said, it is fun to have fun, but you have to know how. This is why the Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional, requiring extensive advanced preparation. At the very least, a scrubbed house, a full larder, and a bath. The rules did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of the will. 
one that has to be bolstered by habit as well as by social sanction. Now, I am in no way telling you to observe the Sabbath, in the, even in the, like the thumbnail sketch that she kind of repeated there. But what I am saying is, like I said, you can't trust yourself to know if you're actually resting. Like me as my own individual self, when, I, when my heart is anxious, I can't trust it to tell me if I'm actually rested. Does that make sense? So you need to invite others into the way that you think about rest. Um, but it also means that we need to be intentional. And so that, that might mean, and this kind of leads me into the next thing, um, but it, it might mean like making rules for ourselves about what we do and don't do with technology, for instance. So that's the fourth thing. Be careful about your use of technology. And the reason that I think that this is critical is because we can now work without sweating or without doing anything approaching sweating, right? Does that make sense? Like on our, like very few of us actually have like physically intensive jobs. And we think, I think it's very easy for us to think that, well, if I'm just looking at my phone, I'm not really working, but our technology is actually designed to like fuel the restlessness within us. And when we're anxious, we cannot trust our own hearts. So be careful about the way that we use technology as we rest. That might look like things like turning our phones off one day a week, turning our phones off one hour a day. Um, and, and I would also say this, like never stop starting those routines. <laughs> because if you're anything like my family, like we, I, we make these rules about like no phones in the bedroom. And it's great for like three weeks, and then, um, and then it just falls by the wayside. So never stop starting those routines. And then the final thing is this, be okay with missing out. Um, there is no way that you are ever gonna actually rest without missing out on something. And in some ways that is sort of the whole point. Um, when you have a father who loves you, who doesn't want more from you, but who wants more for you. You have everything you need in Christ. You have everything you need because God loves you and he is for you. And so you can miss out on that next thing at work. You can miss out on that one client. Maybe it'll cost you something, maybe it won't. You don't know, but you have a father who loves you. And you don't have to get everything done when you live in that security. I got home... Uh, usually Fridays I get home late because I'm trying to finish or start my sermon, but um, <laughs> on this past Friday, it was my kid's first day of summer, and so they were super eager to like kind of for dad to get home and get summer going, and I wasn't even out of the car before my kids are climbing into the car, and my daughter is saying, telling me everything that we're going to do tonight, and she is so excited, and she is, you know, bouncing up and down like Tigger, and um, and my daughter tells me that uh, she's been telling me everything about she, what she did that day. And then she tells me, and tonight we're going to have a movie night and then we're going to have a dance party. And she is so excited. And uh, so we get dinner going and we sit down and we have this family movie night. And um, she kind of snuggles up next to me, nestles in under my arm. And I just, we sit there and watch the movie with my arm around her. And it wasn't too long before I kind of felt her weight begin to shift. And I, I asked, and she's, she's fallen asleep there. And she just slept in my arms, you know. 
And the next morning I carried her up to bed, I put her to bed. The next morning she said, did I miss the dance party? <laughs> and I said, yeah, you missed the dance party. She said, that's okay, we'll do it again. And that's the point. When you know that you have a father who loves you, you can be okay with missing out because you rest in the security that you are loved. If you know that you have a father who loves you, who wants more for you, you will be able to rest. And without that knowledge, nothing in the world will be enough. Nothing in the world will really be enough. You know, people who study sleep patterns tell us that it takes time to get the deep sleep that we really need. If you were to take one, or if you were to take eight one-hour naps a day, you would be an utter wreck because it takes about 90 minutes to get into deep REM sleep. We live in a world that actively fights against us getting the REM sleep of the soul, the REM sleep that we truly need. It won't happen in bits and pieces. We live in a world that says it's all up to you, and our hearts tell us that if we can just hold on a little bit longer, everything will suddenly be fine. But deep down, we know that that's not true. And so the invitation of the gospel rest, of gospel rest, is to stop white-knuckling our lives and to open our hands and let go. And when you finally let go, you will find that you are not in free fall because you are held in the arms of the Father who loves you and who will actually give you rest. Let's pray. God, we are uh, busy people and we are restless people. We are anxious about many things. And yet when we look at this passage and we see Jesus' invitation to follow him into true rest, God, it makes my heart just burn. God, we want the kind of rest that a great meal cannot provide, a great vacation cannot provide. We need the rest of being able to sleep like a child who knows that no matter what's going on around, that our Father is looking out for us. Would you help us to uh, enter into that rest because Jesus has lived and died and and risen again for us. And because ultimately we will rest with you, help us to be people who are characterized in this life by being able to rest being able to say enough is enough, being able to turn off the frenetic pace of the culture that we live in. Would you help us to be honest and vulnerable with one another about the ways that we need each other to hold us accountable, to uh, encourage us to actually enter into rest with us? God, would you make that true of us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.